the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. You're listening to the Baked in Science Podcast. Welcome to Baked in Science. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn from Bakerpedia, the world's largest technical resource for commercial bakers. Before I start this session, I'd like to share some Bakerpedia news with you. Are you feeling lonely these days? Like you need someone to talk to about your dough problems? Well, I have some refreshing news for you. We now have a community at the Baker Forum that can help you out with that. It's just a bunch of bakers coming together to help problem solve and provide solutions. You have to be a member though to join the Baker Forum. So go sign up now because membership is free. It's free because it's provided by our fabulous sponsors. So see you over there at the forums today. Today, I have Mark Flowerkey, our community manager, and Tyler Lorenzen, the CEO of Puris. And both of them will be addressing the vegan trend. This trend cannot be ignored, bakers. So tune in and listen to what these guys have to say. So, um, Mark is our community manager over at the forums, and um, he is a seasoned baker and just recently retired from ADM after working there for how many years, Mark? 25 years. 25 years. So, um, Mark, you were trained as a baker in Germany, weren't you? I was trained as a, as a pastry chef and confectioner. Um, and, you know, actually, oddly enough, the baking, I, I picked up a little more on my own along the way because it's actually a completely separate trade in Germany. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, as a baking specialist in ADM, you probably come across a lot of projects. Is that correct? Yes. Vast array of projects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We a lot in the vegan space. And the yeah. So what do you feel about the vegan trend? Well, some of it is, I mean, it started off very small. I just like the way gluten-free started off were for people who had allergies, actually, and, and food sensitivities. Um, I think where it got a really big boost was the avian flu when eggs were not available and they were very high in price. Um, a lot of people started switching to egg-free or, you know, partial egg substitution and, and things like that. And uh, um, I think that as they found that they could get their protein from other sources than um, an animal, it fits in nicely with this, the whole trend towards uh, pro- uh, plant proteins. And um, there are different sub-trends in the vegan diet. Isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Um, there's um, some people will, who follow a very strict vegan diet. Um, it's nothing from any animal in any form whatsoever. That's, so that includes honey uh, because it would be taking food from the bees. Um, but then there's, there's those that are ovo vegan who will make exceptions and eat egg, but nothing else. Uh, no, no milk or no things like that. And then lacto vegan, they will eat dairy, but no eggs and things like that. Um, and like vegetarians, some vegetarians will eat fish 
Um, so it's uh, like satirians. Yeah. So how do you design a food product for these people? I mean, do you just, when, when someone say it's, it's for the vegan trend, what do you do? What, what things immediately do you remove? You, you first, you ask a lot of questions to make sure you, you get it right because nobody wants, there's nothing worse than starting a project and getting halfway through the project and realizing like, oh, we don't need that or that's not what we wanted or things. So the, the beginning of any research and, and product development is a lot of questions. Um, I always like the saying, um, there's uh, in, in Illinois, they're saying like uh, Abraham Lincoln used to say that if he was given four days to uh, fell a tree, he would, he would spend three days sharpening his axe. Um, and so there's, you know, you, you ask a lot of questions in the beginning to get, get things sorted so that you, you understand also what the importance is, because it's not simply switching out um, things that might replace an egg. So um, things that the egg is composed of essentially water, protein, fat, and lecithin. Those are the main things that we, we, we think of when we think of an egg. So if you just simply took protein, um, like say a whey protein, and replaced it, you wouldn't get the functionality of the lecithin. You would still need more you know, liquid in terms of water or something like that. And how is it all going to work? Is it going to aerate sufficiently? Is it going to bind sufficiently so that the, the eating qualities, the, the low volume, whatever the case may be, or muffin or cake or things like that, they all need to be met as well. And, and they need to be prioritized within the project so that if you're going to lose, if you're making, let's say, a banana loaf and you're going to lose 10% loaf volume, but everything else you hit the mark, maybe that's acceptable to the, you know, that's, those are the things that you need to uh, flush out with the customer, right? And then the ingredients too, because there again, as we talk about vegan, uh, vegan way not, may not be permissible. Um, right. And uh, when someone asks me to develop a vegan product, the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, we got to remove the butter. We got to remove the eggs. Mm -hmm. We got to remove the milk. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a lot of functionality there. Yes, right? exactly. That's, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, uh, it's just that one of the things It's like, I mean, okay, you know, butter and um, milk is less functional than eggs and butter and milk is more easily replaced, you know, through total solids and oils. Mm -hmm. But eggs is the main challenge. Yes, it's what one have of the you, What have you seen in terms of egg replacement in, in um, that aspect, developing it for, you know... A, 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 a lot of the... the, the, the uh, a lot of the companies in the bakery space um, will provide certain solutions that are more um, product targeted in the sense that I mean is that um, you can have an egg replacement that works in cookies, but it won't work in cakes. That's you true. You can have one in cakes and it doesn't work in cookies. But it's, it's, it's seldom is it a single ingredient. Um, larger processors who have the buying power to buy, for them, it's, it's advantageous then to work with ingredient suppliers and they make their own concoctions um, out of different things. But it's looking at those replacers in terms of the, what they're providing functionally and nutritionally is, is helps give a guide. So, um, protein, we, well, we mentioned whey, for example, that it helps if whey is permissible, then it helps not only protein, but it also helps as an emulsifier. Um, right. If, whey, whey um, is like a magical ingredient. Yeah. 
Um, and then there's the protein isolates. Um, some of the wheat protein isolates have really good whipping characteristics. So if you're trying to make an angel food cake, you want to start with a wheat protein isolate and then something that's going to help provide that structure. Because mm -hmm. the only disadvantage that I have found, if you just go straight, replace the, the egg whites with wheat protein isolate, you get a real nice whip and then you put it in the oven and it just completely collapses. <laughs> um, I had so much air, hope for that product. It looks so yeah, great when it was mixing up. Uh, because the, the, the starch and the cake flour takes longer to cook then the air expands and wants to have something to hold on to. So if you don't have a structure, a scaffolding for it to grab and hold that structure, then it just all your bubbles burst essentially, right? That's true. Um, and um, and so um, we did some work also in combination with uh, with lentils um, that were processed, and uh, we got some. We were getting closer. We were getting some pretty good results, and then you just need some instant starches or other gums to go along with it to help set up that structure. Um, soy protein protein isolates provide more of the um, emulsification properties, less of the aeration. Um, so they're really good in loaf cakes and muffins, and um, we've done some different combinations, or I've done some different combinations with cookies, um, depending on the different type of protein isolates. Uh, the companies like ADM and Cargill who produce these isolates, they have a wide range of diff all different kinds of isolates, and um, they can usually tell you, well, what do you, what do you want more? Um, binding? Do you want more emulsification? Do you, mm -hmm. you know, all these different things. A lot of them were originally developed for the meat industry. And with all the interest in plant protein and vegan, they've been adapted now to bakery applications as well. That's um, true. It's, uh, so, and then fiber, like the, um, uh, the one from uh, Wacker that we were using the other day, um, you, ha you had in your seminar, mm -hmm. that, that is very useful. Um, you mean fiber or emulsifier? Uh, the emulsifier, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, the emulsifier. Yeah. Yeah, the that, emulsifier. that's an amazing product from Wacker where um, I actually, um, there is a video on YouTube where I actually do, do that. I mix up the, um, the water with the alpha cyclodextrins and heat it up and the heating mm -hmm. process actually activates the cyclodextrins the alpha cyclodextrins and um it just form a really thick foam after that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with oil so yeah. it really blows my mind on how this new technology is coming around and disrupting a lot of things you know mm -hmm. I don't know. I just think that between that itself and the other technologies out there, like maple fiber and um, the isolates, you know, we might not need eggs anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, like 20 years from now, we'll be like, Oh, eggs! Those are the ones we, we we want to use though, that those things in our baking. <laughs> I think a lot of the, a lot of the, that depends on how all of those things develop going forward. I mean, um, absolutely. There's so many different things that come to mind, environmental and otherwise. Um, I mean, we've heard a lot with, with the, the situation with COVID-19, um, with all of the restrictions that it has had an effect on um, improving the ozone layer and reducing air pollution in large cities and, and things like that. Um, you know, the one of the things that often when environmentalists 
talk about the the effect that humans have on and, or our diets and everything on the environment it is it is often things like cattle and pigs and and chickens in terms of all of the, you know dealing with all of their waste product and stuff and how that affects the environment um, and chickens are pretty be nasty, um, and then there's also these these trends within within um, uh, breeding, like the uh, the layers, uh, where they there's a lot of groups who feel they they should be caged in greater space. Um, although there's a lot of conflicting science around that, because it is then a lot of conflicting science. You just pecking yeah. each other and, and killing you each other. You just can't like agree. <laughs> you have with greater mortality than the small cages, but um, those things. So, and those, those affect also availability and cost. And yes, it, it may be that eggs will maybe not completely disappear, but they may become something much more rare and special again over time um, that we will, you know, that we will be much more accustomed to plant-based protein cakes and cookies. And that, um, to get a nice chocolate chip cookie made with egg is going to probably cost you four or five dollars, right? <laughs> right. You know, and and with any trends like the vegan trend, like the mm-hmm. high protein Atkins trend, um, mm-hmm. and like gluten free trend, right? Yep. It challenges bakers to bake differently, you know. And Absolutely. I believe this is what's pushing the industry to do different things. Yeah. Like without the vegan trend, we wouldn't see things like alpha de- cyclodextrins or mm-hmm. maple fiber, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, without the gluten-free trend, we wouldn't see uh, the Rioflex, you know, the modified amylopectin, you mm-hmm. know. So can you imagine in about three years what kind of technologies that we are going to see in the baking toolbox? It's going to be so different. You know, yeah. and, and I'm truly, really excited about this because um, things are coming into Bakerpedia and we are seeing what totally different things. I mean, when the maple fiber came onto my desk, I was like, why? Why does anybody want to do maple fiber? <laughs> right? Yeah, like, nice. do you wake up one day and decide you want to make fiber out of maple wood? You know, but the entire sustainable story is yeah. just amazing. I it's mean, you heard because that. Because they process it just with water. And, and, you know, it's just like if, if that is just the forefront of the technology, what else are we going to see here in the next mm-hmm. few years? Yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of interesting changes. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it, the, the major manufacturers um, are, are really also pivoting and adjusting to that as well. Um, I can say from my experiences, you know, from an ingredient supplier like ADM, um, ADM basically promoted a, a, a person into a brand new position they created, created as the manager of Flexitarian. Um, and so, yeah, so this, this gentleman has a team of people that work with him that. and, and the, the business that they look after is everything that is relates to the Flexitarian diet and the market. So they're, that's you know, huge. Yeah, that's huge. That's that's the that's the indication of things as people yeah. understand where their food source, mm-hmm. you know, where their food is coming from, and um, they have the power and the ability to decide who to buy from, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why um, we are seeing a lot, a lot of um, pea proteins, mm-hmm. uh, alternative yep. proteins that are coming into the market. Very exciting, really. I yeah. wish we had. Another hour to talk about this, right? Um, have you have you heard anything yet? I, I'm I'm getting feedback that 
aquafaba is something that people should be looking at. Well, have you heard anything about that? Well, I, right I've now, very been, limited information. Yeah, it's been that. it's been something that sort of has been coming and going a little bit. Um, the, the the major part of the trend is is uh, born out of for for consumers primarily. Where if you if you've never heard of aquafaba, it's basically where you drain you buy a bunch of canned beans from the grocery store and you drain the liquid off the canned beans and you can whip it. You, I've made meringues with it. I've made macaron with it. I've I've made cakes with it and stuff. It it functions much like egg protein. So there's there's the um, there's not a lot of detailed understanding about it. But what we presume is that uh, certain proteins from the beans leach into the canning fluid um, together with the salt that's there um, during the retort process. Because when you fully cook your beans or peas or things like that, like the, the hummus manufacturers, they cook a lot of chickpeas. And That's so they true. have all this wastewater. Why not use it for aquafaba? It doesn't work. Um, the, the protein is denatured somehow. Um, yeah. There is a company um, that I saw at a conference once, and they have a proprietary uh, patent pending milling process as to how they mill raw chickpeas. And they, those milled raw, that raw chickpea powder can be hydrated and whipped into a meringue like the aquafaba. Now, one of the things we say, whip, it'll whip like egg whites or whipped into a meringue. Um, if, you're, if you're whipping like a, a liter of, of egg whites, for example, into a meringue, it probably takes about 67 minutes to whip it up. With the aquafaba, it takes about 20 to 30. So <laughs> you have to plan your production a little bit differently. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so it, 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 is, it, it does take longer till, till it, it, it does start to aerate. Um, that's that's yeah. one of the Right, so Interesting. That is tall. I, I would love to see any kind of published science behind that. If you if you come across, that. I would love to. I can it. I can try and find some. Yeah, because yeah, RCA be at the conference. I think it was about four years ago. I saw it at the conference where they were, uh, and they actually had the baker that the company was working with, who tried it in his bakery, and he's trying to make his bakery vegan. Um, and he was on site at the conference and uh, demonstrated making macaron from scratch, um, basically just with aquafava, water, almonds, and sugar. Um, and it was, they were really nice. It was, it turned out great. That's great. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks. That's great. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I want to. I get that all the time. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I would like to know if there are any vegan bakers out there that I could get on the show and really talk about what you see as the biggest challenge being a vegan bakery. So that would if, be great. Um, I'll have to see if I can find the, the name of this fellow who was at the conference a few years back. And uh, I imagine there must some, be some others because uh, there are, but, but it's so like now it's time. You know, prior years is so hard because the vegan trend wasn't wasn't strong enough. Mm -hmm. You know, now that there's more awareness, there is more al alternatives out there. I think a vegan bakery would make sense now. Yeah, yeah. a lot of the um, a lot of these newer technologies are born also out of again relating back to the avian flu because eggs became so incredibly expensive. Um, 
uh, I had the opportunity to uh, participate in some um, uh, meetings with the American Egg Board, and um, they provided us with also some presentations from the producers and stuff to understand that side of things. And um, uh, egg whites became so inexpensive for um, the the uh, for the producers to be able to even sell the eggs for, for cracking and using an, an albumin that it wasn't worth it. So albumin became more and more scarce. And so then the, the price went up. So I think at one point it was over a hundred dollars a kilo. Um, oh my God. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. And so the, um, but the, the comeback of, of the, the layers after the avian flu is that they kind of overshot their projections and prices plummeted. So a lot of these technologies were born out of um, larger producers looking for partial egg replacement simply as a cost reduction means. So, and then it got put on the shelf and vegan is what's pulling it back out into the, to the light, so to speak. Yeah, and I think it's, it's going to be very interesting moving forward. You know, um, when I started Bakerpedia about six years ago, I didn't see as much innovation as I do right now. You know, I mean, these days it's just like, it's coming, you know? So, um, so glad you're joining us as uh, a community manager and so glad that you are willing to share your expertise with the forum members. Um, guess what I got for you? Oh, wow. This is coming your way. Look at this. <laughs> oh, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a flower fantastic. one. That's and uh, you can get this at the Bakerpedia t-shirt shop. You know, yep, there's, so, yeah, there's lots um, of great t-shirts there. That's yeah, it is a great t-shirt. And um, because you are a pizza baker and you've been so helpful for us, guess what I'm sending you to here? My <laughs> mic doesn't fall off. Hang on. Ah, that's funny. I was just noticing the peel back there. And I was thinking I should get one to hang on the wall. <laughs> that's fantastic. It. It's given to us by the perfect peel. Oh, cool. Larry, so we, we're sending one over to you as well. And uh, I know you bake a lot of pizza. I know you bake a lot. So yeah. you need this. This is so <laughs> I got go cool. on the go right now. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. So, I, um, I, I used to know, I used to, my, my chef a long time ago taught me how to fold Kaisers by hand. Um, like nowadays, everybody just uses a stamp. Oh, yeah. I, um, I, I, I never knew that. Like, yeah. this is the first time I'm hearing from you. You can actually fold a Kaiser. Because yes, I'm, you, I, I'm a hamburger bun person, right? Yeah, we stamp everything. In. And so I've been trying to relearn that skill. I'm, I can do it with the, the knot, like where you make a strand. Yeah. Tie it in. But there's the old-fashioned way of doing it is folding it over your finger and then folding the others in and tucking. And so, um, I would like I, to I see can, that. Yeah, I, I, when I get it right, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I made 12 the other day, and they, they don't look anything like Kaiser's. <laughs> I will. But my wife enjoys them for breakfast anyway, so. <laughs> well, Mark, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Talk Thank to you, you very soon. See you at the forums. All right, yep, take care. Up next, let's hear from Tyler Lorenzen, the CEO of Puris, and how, as a kid, he thought pollinating plants was a normal kid thing to do. 
and how he's positioned his fast-growing company in the middle of this booming vegan plant-based trend. In continuing to talk about the vegan trend, I have reached out to Tyler Lorenzen. He is the CEO of Purees. Welcome, Tyler. Thanks for having me, Dr. Lin. Hey, thanks for coming on. What products are you offering the vegan market? Well, we're a plant-based company through and through. So really everything we do is, is meeting the, the vegan market, so to speak. And I think there's, there's a number of ways people label it, but we really call it plant-based. And so we're known for our pea protein, first and foremost. That's really our thing. So uh, what, what does that mean to us is, is really ingredients that are derived from peas and, and different pulses. So we, we are in the pea protein market, pea starches, fibers, and then further downstream manufacturing that turns some of those ingredients into other things, whether that be a plant-based textured meat application or uh, a protein crisp, or even things on the starch side, which I'm sure people are familiar with but through modification or hydrolyzing, turning it into syrups and wow. things of that nature. So we're, we do everything that you could do with a pea. We also sell whole pulse flowers uh, like chickpeas and fava beans and things of that nature. But what, what makes us excited about this whole plant-based or, or vegan food movement? I was just going to ask you, you know, what's, what's so different about your, your products? I mean, it's already available. So what makes it different? You, you know, it's, it's one of those things that this, these products have been around for some time. But the movement has started to happen for a number of reasons, whether it's health and wellness or it's vegan or organic or diet restrictions, you name it. Uh, but our business was built on the, the foundation of, of unlocking a, a system of sustainability for food and taking those ingredients and making great tasting food out of them and tying that back to sustainable crops that farmers can grow. And if you have a strong connection between the two, then food eaters will choose to eat great tasting, healthy foods for people and planet. And that's, uh, that's why we started our company. My pops actually started our company back in the mid eighties. And I'm, I'm second generation to the founder. So I grew up uh, a plant breeder, a uh, plant breeder's son. So that's a family business and breeding that's plants. That's actually a thing, a, pro a plant breeder's son. <laughs> that's right. I, and, and my sister did the them, same thing. I don't thing. meet them very often. <laughs> well, if, if you would have been a 12-year-old in southern Iowa and it, any sort of my friend, you would have been helping us uh, breed plants, soybeans and peas and corn oh, uh, back wow. in the day. <laughs> so, so your, your father started this business then and he grew crops in between, um, you know, major cash crops. Why did he feel it was necessary to make those kind of crops tasty or delicious? Yeah, I think, I think there's really two things that matter in, in this whole journey. So he was a, a typical plant breeder at the time back in the 80s and really using natural selection and selecting different varieties to breed through cross-pollination to make uh, a better variety, whether that's for yield or whether that's for emergence, you name it. And he, he thought that system was interesting and really as a soybean breeder, but his whole goal was, you know, as the population changed, and it sounds cliche today because yeah. this is, it's here, but back in 1985, it was novel. Uh, there's going to be a need for a new way of getting protein to people 
on a global basis. And it cannot impact the environment as much as conventional ways of getting protein at the time and still to this day. Uh, so plant-based agriculture for plant-based food versus plant-based agriculture for animal food. That was this whole concept. And, but the, the rub at the time is there was tofu. Tofu was invented a long time ago. Different products like that, natto soybeans as an example, were invented long a long time before that, but they weren't tasty enough to make a food eater commit to this lifestyle of, of eating. So his thought was, we not only need to breed for the farmers to want to grow it, but let's start breeding plants that have unique taste attributes, unique functionalities that help food makers and, and manufacturers and, and product developers design better tasting food through unique ingredients. And if you're able to do some work in the, in the field or with the seed, you can pull that cultivar all the way through into the food, and now you have a pretty sticky system, great tasting food, backed by really healthy and sustainable farming practices allow you to, to grow. And, and peas were fun because, you know, if, if you're a, a plant breeder or a farmer, you know that peas are typically grown pretty far north. And we grew up in, in southern Iowa with this concept of, could you grow peas further south? And if you could, could you grow peas at different times of the year when the farmer may not be using the, the field for anything? And that, this idea was pretty novel. And in 1999, we had our first uh, pea research plot in Kansas. And there's not a lot of peas or any peas grown in Kansas. Which part of Kansas? Uh, it was around like uh, Hutchison, Kansas. Oh, okay. In the middle of Kansas. <laughs> yeah. So, so this, this idea of could you adapt peas that are typically grown in Canada in that, that, the, that type of longitude and build a solution for farmers to grow it off cycle. And now today, fast forward 20 some years, we have over 400 farmers growing our peas from as far west as California to as far east as Georgia, all through Montana, Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, down south, and we're growing plenty of peas in a double crop system and, and plenty of peas on rotation. And they're cool, like every legume, they're a nitrogen fixator. Right. So you're able to take usable nitrogen from the air uh, through a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria in the soil, they convert it into usable nitrogen for, the, for the itself, but legumes overproduce it. Yeah. So it's also available to fertilize the next plant. So right. pretty cool farming system and, yeah. and a sustainable movement. How long did your dad took to breed that system? So typically when you're, when you're doing any sort of, of cross-selection or breeding, uh, this is a lot different than genetic modification. So this isn't lab work. This is literally in the field, pollinating um, right. different varieties. Were you, were you involved in that, by the way? <laughs> oh, for sure. I, I spent a lot of time uh, literally breeding. And you, know, wow. you have to pick flowers and there's little tiny um, stems that have pollen on them. Uh -huh. And you, you dust the pollen from one plant to the other and you oh, put a tag and you hope that it, that it takes. And <laughs> then in the fall, you go collect those seeds and that's a new variety. But that takes a long time. And that, that is an interesting childhood, by the way. <laughs> I, I didn't know it was weird at the time, I swear. I thought it was normal. But now looking back, I, I recognize that that's not typical for yeah. sure. Um, 100 years is about the about the timeline it takes to 
seven years to get a variety to not segregate. And, wow. You know, we have like 600,000 different genomes in our, in our bank. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, my dad has two kids, my sister who's in the business as well and, and myself. And, but he has thousands of thousands of little kids in terms of keys. <laughs> <laughs> but unlike any other family business, uh, you took a different pivot with yours by going into joint venture right so could you tell us a little bit more about your new venture yeah for sure i'll tell you a little bit of the backstory so i was uh i played played football that was my thing and i grew up working but football was my thing that was my passion and i was lucky enough to play professionally but not very long and uh so i got cut nfl not for long it's always my little joke and so i'm back in the business so you were in the nfl yeah just for a little bit yeah, which team? I played for the New Orleans Saints, so who that? Oh, cool. And uh, all you who that nation, if you're listening in, uh, yeah. Saints. You, you would have a lot of fans listening on here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that. But, <laughs> which is all good, which is all good. But I, I came back to the business, and at that time, we had a couple facilities. We we're mainly a soy company. Our pea breeding program uh, was getting some traction and starting to grow. We're picking up farmers and, and really starting to work on moving their product to people that would buy it. And my dad's vision was never to be a seed company. It was never to be just a merchandising company. It was to be a closed loop manufacturer of plant-based food. And wow. he wanted to sell seed That's to farmers, an amazing buy vision. it back and then, you know, make ingredients and food in the end. And wow. at that time he, he was interested in buying a facility in Wisconsin. It was a, uh, a, a, a left to, to rust dairy plant and he was able to buy it and he said you know are you interested in helping me look at this and so at that time in, in, in pro football eating plant-based eating soy protein these types of things were very frowned upon yeah frankly weird you not had to eat protein. yeah low, lower quality not as good this was the perspective and but there was tailwinds supporting non-GMO, organic, and, and really people looking for alternatives that were less inflammation or whatever on their bodies. So I, I was like, Dad, you know what? There's a lot of stuff that supports your vision. And I'm, I'm all in if we go big, uh, but I'm going to have to do something else if we want to stay small. And sure enough, he's like, let's go big. And we tell my mom, and she's like, what are you guys doing? And so... From that point on, uh, my role in the company was to put together the, the investors that could support our growth and, and help us uh, get to scale. And so we've, we've spent some time with family offices supporting our movement, but there was an inflection point uh, as the growth of plant-based went from nascent to this growth phase that we're, we're experiencing today, where we knew that the, the level of capital intensity for this business to, for us to be a leader uh, we would require some sort of partner. And luckily enough, um, we've developed a great relationship with Cargill and they have a long-term horizon. They see the, the growth and potential of plant-based and specific pea protein. And we were able to partner up and together now as a, a, in a joint venture, which, which is a business that I run, you know, we'll be the, the only company with a two plant model in, in North America will be certainly, if not the largest manufacturer uh, in terms of scale. And 
I'll argue with anybody. We'll have the best tasting stuff for sure. <laughs> Tell us about your best tasting stuff. I'm sure you've put a lot of uh, research and development into um, producing your uh, pea products. What 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 is to be expected when, say, if I'm a developer and using your your uh, purest pea versus other pea products? Yeah, I think back when we first rolled pea protein out, the, this this concept was kind of looked at us like, hey, you're what are you guys talking about? Pea protein? And then the expectation was, oh, from peas, are they green peas? It, po- it can't possibly taste good. And so that was, that's the frame and that's the context. And we knew that, well, for, for people to want to try it and for food developers to use it as an ingredient, it has to taste good. Our, our head of R&D, a gentleman named Kishal Chandek, he's, he was the, him and I were the first two employees of our protein business. And uh, he was employee number one, I was number two. And together we, we helped design, and really him, but uh, design the protein product in our process. So when we look at peas, really it's, it's de- deflavoring. And when I say deflavoring, neutral taste, neutral. and then light in color. And right. we, want, we want to do that from the seed all the way through the manufacturing. So every step of, of the, the system, we look as a flavor gate. And if we're able to create neutral taste and light in color, uh, we believe that food formulators and certainly flavorists are able to bring out what's the best tasting and the purpose of the product. You know, a, a plant protein a waffle you know, with 12 grams of protein, as an example, is supposed to taste like a waffle. It's not supposed to taste like something different because it has uh, protein in it. So we focus a lot on that. And I think the other thing is, you know, proteins are complex. There's a lot of cool things you can do to change the protein slightly, uh, pre-digest the proteins, enhance, uh, lower the sodium, enhance the calcium, things of that nature to create a a unique functionality within applications. So the the product that works for uh, a ready-to-drink beverage may not be the exact product that works for a bar. They're they're different. And and that's because the system is is different, frankly. Right. Um, So how do you get rid of that bitter taste yeah well some of it happens in the breeding side for okay. sure we, we we definitely think about that but then further on the the downstream manufacturing our our process is similar to what you would think of a dairy plant would look like so we have it's a liquid uh, process we use mechanical separation and we we manage the volatiles that are left and really use heat pressure and different things to to create a neutral tasting product uh, we end up spray drying our products so that's uh, really? to take the water out. So you have uniform particle size, and and there, there's a number of things that you can do there. But ultimately, it's it's how do you remove the flavors, and that's typically through our it's through our proprietary process by using the right levels of heat and different uh, process parameters. Well, I hope bakers listen to this and uh, give your purest pea protein a try um it's interesting because a lot of people use drum drying and milling versus you know spray drying so really appreciate that insight into your process thank you tyler thank you for coming on and sharing your passion and how to make the vegan market more attractive for bakers i'll come in online anytime dr dr lynn before i end I want to thank our sponsor, Reading Thermal. Thank you 
your continued sponsorship have made Bakerpedia available for all bakers out there. Find out more about Reading Thermal and other sponsors on our sponsor showcase on Bakerpedia.com. Lastly, please like, comment, and subscribe to Baked in Science. Till the next time, bakers, learn more about plant-based proteins for baking on Bakerpedia.